You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. You had a happy Thanksgiving. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Um, it's going to take us quite a bit of time to get there. We're actually going to spend uh, a, a lot of time just kind of sp- running through the whole Bible today. So hope you packed the lunch. No, I'm kidding. Um, we have another service after this, so we'll get out of here on time. But good news today. If you're bad at Bible drill and it takes you a while to get to Luke 2, you've got plenty of time. Um, if, if you're a guest with us, we've mentioned this before, but I just want to take a, a moment. I, I know that there are probably a handful more people here in the room today who aren't typically with us because maybe you're checking us out for the first time you live in town or, or you're visiting with family. And man, we're glad that you guys are here with us. And this will be helpful for you even if you come every week. Our, our hope as we gather as the people of God is to remember together the good news of the gospel, um, that we're loved by God. That's true. But it's not true because we deserve it from him or because we've earned it from him. It's true because Jesus Christ has earned it on our behalf. And we come together week in and week out to remember the good news together, God's grace and mercy and kindness towards us in Christ. And so that's our hope and prayer for you. If you're with us, we'd love to help you, pray for you. Whatever we can do, please let us know. Um, Today is an exciting day. Uh, As we mentioned, it's the first Sunday in Advent, and we're starting a new series called Behold. And if you don't know what Advent is, we'll talk about it a lot today, so you'll know when you leave here. Um, I have two things to make you aware of before we jump in. The first one is about our Christmas Eve services. And I know you're probably thinking right now, it's too early to talk about that. I haven't even digested all the casserole ate this week, Um, but we need you to be aware of our Christmas Eve gatherings. Um, It's going to happen on Christmas Eve. Believe it or not, we're going to do three of them, uh, three o'clock, 4.30, and six. We're going to have childcare available at the 4.30, but the reason why I mention it to you now is to plea with you um, to register online if you plan to attend. Um, we're going to do three of them. As I mentioned, our, we anticipate them to be at least this full, and we want to maximize the amount of people that we can safely space in the room three times, uh, and so we need your help to do that. We want to be able to plan accordingly. If you can register as soon as possible, that would be awesome. You can do that online. It's available now, um, but don't do it now because I'll see you and I'll know. I'm just kidding. You can do it if you want. Uh, go ahead and register. Secondly, super excited about this one. You may already know this if you uh, saw the blog we posted this week, um, but we are going to walk through as a church uh, an Advent devotional throughout the month of December, and we want to invite you to participate, you and your family, to come alongside us. Uh, we're going to use this book here, Paul Tripp's Come Let Us Adore Him. Um, it's a, an awesome little resource, short daily devotionals, super gospel heavy. Um, I love at the end of it, there's, there's references for more scripture reading. If you want to kind of do reading on your own, there's actually a section um, at the back of each one too for parents and children um, with kind of key themes for that devotional reading that you can talk about and questions designed to create conversation with your children about who Christ is and what he's done. And so I'm super excited about the opportunity to do that uh, with, uh, with the church um, and, and honestly how unique it is that we would be able to read the same things each day, whether it's morning, noon, night, whenever you find space, and allow those things, those thoughts about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to move us into prayer together in this season uh, as a church. It's just really exciting. We have some books available for you here. They cost $11 on Amazon. They only cost us eight. And so we'd love for you to take one. Um, you can uh, throw, if you do grab one, you can give $8 in any of our offering boxes around or, or online, or if you can't afford $8, feel free to take one. That's our gift to you. Again, we're excited to jump in on this together. If you're wondering why, why would we do this? Why do we do Advent in the first place? Why would we spend time every single day in the month of December on something? I wanna read you a quote 
from the devotional because I think it really captures why. In a culture that uses this season to get children to dream about how their lives would be made better by possessing a certain material thing, where Christmas has been reduced to a shopper's nightmare and a retailer's dream, it is vital to draw the wonder of our children away from the next great toy and toward the wonder of the coming of our great Lord and Savior Jesus. May the glory of the best gift ever recapture our hearts so that we really do come to adore him. And so I don't know about you, but when I read that, I know that's not just for my kids, right? I need that. I need my wonder drawn away from the next thing or device or relationship that I think is gonna satisfy me. We need our wonder drawn away from those things and we need our hearts recaptured by the glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so um, I think we might say things a lot that, that we believe are true, but our lives prove something's different, right? We might even go to Hobby Lobby and buy a sign that says he's the reason for the season and put it on our mantle, right? But what do our lives say is the reason for the season? So if you were to just spend some time this month and you just kept an account of how you spent your time and how you spent your money and how you, what, what you paid attention to, what would that reveal has gripped your heart? Uh, when I was preparing for this, I thought about this verse in Hebrews 2. It'll be on the screen. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. The idea here is that our attention, the focus of your life, it's like a toddler. And if you ever spend any time with a toddler, if you have one, you put them down, um, what happens? They gone, all right? You look away, they are, they are gone. They will naturally gravitate to the most dangerous things in the room. Steak knives, they're gonna grab them. The outlet, they're gonna put their finger in it. They're gonna take the steak knife and shove it in there, right? Any open flame, they move directly toward them. Okay, so what happens? You have to go get them and you bring them back and you say, no, stay here. And you look away again and they're gone. It's this process. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is our attention. It's like this, right? You, you turn around and this, it will constantly drift even without us realizing it. So he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Other translations would say, we must pay careful attention to what we've heard. And I like that better, especially around this season of Christmas, this word careful, right? And it's not, hey, be careful because if you don't, you're gonna mess up. It's be careful, like take care. Be intentional, right? Because the Bible says if you don't, your focus will drift away from what is true. It'll drift away from what matters even without you realizing it. And this is why we do Advent. If you didn't know, Advent is from a Latin word that means a coming or an arrival, okay? And so it's a four-week season. It starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which is why we're doing it now when you haven't digested the casserole, but that's when it starts. And so for hundreds of years, the people of God have celebrated this season of Advent. It's a season designed to help us remember and celebrate the arrival of Jesus, that the Son of God, who has always been and will always be, he willingly left his place of honor and glory at the right hand of the Father, and he came to suffer so that you and I might escape eternal suffering. This is the story of Advent. This is what we must pay careful attention to, Jesus, that he humbled himself. Philippians 2 says he took the form of a servant. This means the creator God of the universe willingly entered the womb of a poor teenage girl for you. He humbled himself. He actually came. He came knowing that he would be born in a nowhere town to nobody parents. He came knowing that his earthly parents would be forced to flee their home because King Herod was trying to kill infant boys. So to protect his life, he came knowing his parents would have to flee. He came knowing he would suffer hunger and homelessness. 
He would suffer sadness and grief. He would suffer disloyalty and betrayal by those closest to him. Jesus came knowing that he would suffer the deep emotional pain that comes with being rejected by a father. He came knowing he would suffer the punishment for the sins of others by dying an unjust and violent death on a cross. And the truth of Advent is this, the eternal son of God came as a child so that we might become children of God. That's the good news for us in Christmas. This is Advent, that he actually came. But not only that, the Bible says there's coming a day where he will come again, only this time not as a baby. He will come as king. And Philippians 2 says that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The key word there is every and will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is king of everything and everyone. This means that on that day, it will be impossible not to pay attention. And yet, we can say that we believe that. We can say we believe that's who he is. That's what he's done. We can say we believe we live between these two advents, between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, and yet somehow we can drift away. That our focus and attention, particularly at Christmas, can become about everything but Jesus coming and the promise that he's gonna come again. And at best, what happens is we, we find some time to fit him into our schedule, right? And, and the difficult part about this is it's not usually bad things that tend to creep in and, and push Jesus out of focus, is it? It's usually good things, gifts from God, right? I gotta get the tree up. Gotta get lights on the house. I gotta get this gift for this person. I gotta get the house clean. I gotta cook, right? I gotta make everything perfect because these people are coming over. Gotta go to a million holiday parties. Does anybody really need another white elephant gift exchange? The answer to that is no, if you were wondering. But these are good things, right? These are actually gifts from God, except for the white elephant gift exchange. But it's these gifts from God have a way of displacing in our hearts the ultimate gift of pushing him out. These things that God has given us crowd around him and push him out of view and out of focus. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't go all in on Christmas. What I'm saying is we should pay careful attention so we don't drift away from what matters. And I know this sounds like more work. I know it sounds like more stuff on your to-do list, right? But here's the thing. What if, what if this Christmas were different? What if you and your family said no to some of the things that you always do? And what if you spend some time with your Bible open to Psalm 4610? You don't have to turn there. It says, be still and know that I'm God. What if that's the cadence of your Advent season? What if you spent some time remembering the story of Advent and the promise that it will not always be like this? That there's a day coming where Jesus will come again and you center yourself between these two advents, between his first coming and the promise of his second. And from that place, you celebrate Christmas, which doesn't mean we become all Scrooge, right? It means we still give and receive gifts, but we don't do it to earn people's love and approval. We do it because we have received from the Father the ultimate gift. It means we still invite people into our homes, family and friends, but not because we have to, but because we have been invited by God into a relationship with him. We celebrate Christmas from this place. And so our hope for our church this Advent season is despite all the things that are calling for and demanding your attention, that we would pay attention to what matters, Jesus. That we would behold him 
This word behold is a, a word that shows up over a thousand times in the Bible. A thousand times it shows up. And, and it means to see, right? We don't use this word a lot, behold. We would never say, hey, behold me. We would say, hey, look here, right? We would never say, behold, do you see that? We would say, look at that. But the point is the same, and this is the point for us. We wanna see Jesus. This month, as we gather, we wanna behold Jesus in the story of Christmas. And, and, and what I wanna spend some time with us this morning is beholding a part of the Christmas story that we don't typically think about. I want us to behold the promise. We behold the promise of Christmas. Here's what I mean that we don't typically think about this. If you consider Christmas, the story of the Son of God who came to take away the sin of the world, where does that story start? We think it starts in a manger. But in reality, I think it starts with a promise in the garden. So don't be thrown off by the use of the word story. It doesn't mean the Bible is made up, right? The first four words of the Bible are not once upon a time. It is in the beginning God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God creates the moon and the stars, the plants and the animal. He creates men and women. He puts them in a garden. And Genesis 2.25 says this about them. The man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Before we giggle about that, right, that has far less to do with, with not being clothed and far more to do about this reality of being completely and fully known and not feeling even the slightest need to run and hide. Not feeling even the slightest need to pretend that we're someone we're not. The Bible says they're naked and unashamed. And you know, I thought this week, none of us have ever experienced the fullness of that. And we might have had glimpses of it, right? But at some point or another, even with the people who are closest to us, at some point or another, we, we, we feel the need to self-protect. That I can't let you fully in because if you did, then you, what if I'm not good enough? We're afraid that we'll be rejected or, or a lot of times people do see the dirt in our lives and they do reject us and so we feel shame. And we're driven by fear and shame and um, we've never experienced the fullness of this and the reason why is because of sin. Because in a post-Genesis 3 world, it's not the way God intended it to be. And you know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They have it all. Perfect people in a perfect creation, living in perfect relationship with God. The Bible calls this shalom. It's like peace, but it's more than that. It's everything that God intended it to be. Fullness and perfection in every corner of creation. It's perfect. But Adam and Eve want more. And they... They step over the one boundary that God set for them. One boundary that just says, enjoy it all, but do you trust me? And they reject him. They eat the fruit in this act of distrust and rebellion, basically claiming that they knew more than God does what would satisfy the deep longings of their heart. And in that one act of rebellion, evil and brokenness is ushered into God's perfect creation and the relationship that was once naked and unashamed is now desperate to cover itself. Desperate to run and hide and self-protect and just keep people out because what if I'm not good enough? And like you would expect, God judges the world as a result of their sin. And you might say right now, well, what does that have to do with Christmas? I would say everything. This is the beginning of the Christmas story. It doesn't start in a manger. It starts right here with a promise from God. In Genesis chapter three, before God lays out his judgment for Adam and Eve, before he removes them from the garden, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. 
This is where the Christmas story starts. It starts with a promise, a promise to not only judge sin, but to defeat it forever. A promise that one day someone's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Christmas starts with a promise. I've been talking a lot about promises in my home lately. My son will be five in a couple weeks, my oldest son. And so he's learning about promises and he's learning how to use them to his advantage, right? Because that's what five-year-olds do. Um, Here's an example. Um, He loves golf, loves it which is a gift from God to me because I get to play a lot of golf. Um, but he asked me every day, buddy can, or daddy, can we go play golf? Will you take me? And I say, well, son, no, because I have to go to work. You have to go to school. It gets dark at like 4 p.m. now. You know, we, we can't go all the time. Um, but instead of telling him no, I wanna help him understand why we can't and then point him toward a time when we can. So maybe if dad didn't get enough work done today, I can leave early. I come get you. We'll go play nine holes before it gets dark. And he'll say this, do you promise? Right, he tries to use it to his advantage, he understands. And the reason why is he may not have put it all together, but he knows that if I promise him, there's a better chance of it happening. Um, Because promises point to the character of the promise maker. And, And I wanna be the kind of father who doesn't just make promises, but who keeps it. So it works, it works to his advantage because promises point to the character of the promise maker. But there's another side of promises For example, if he does something that he's not supposed to do, like if I'm walking out of the room, but then I'm still watching in the living room and he gives his brother the people's elbow, uh, and if you don't get that reference, you're probably better off, Um, but if he does that, then he's gonna get a different kind of promise. One like this, hey buddy, behold your father. Um, If you do that again, I promise you're not gonna like the results, right? So not only do promises Uh, point to the character of the promise maker. Usually for us, promises are dictated by the circumstances that surround them. For example, it wouldn't make sense if if he said, Daddy, will you take me to play golf today? And I brought him over and said, Son, I promise you won't like it if you ask me that again. That wouldn't make sense. It also wouldn't make sense if he gives his brother the people's elbow and I said, Buddy, I promise I'll take you golfing later. Because promises are dictated by the culture Uh, and the circumstances that surround them. And so the reason why I tell you that is because if you bring those two ideas about promises into Genesis 3, how crazy unexpected is this? Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden in the presence of God, that's not unexpected. That's what they deserve. That's the punishment they deserve for rejecting and mistrusting the God of the universe. What is unexpected is this. Before the dust even settles on Adam and Eve's rebellion, God, before he even kicks them out of the garden, he makes a promise to them about how he's gonna bring them back in. That's the beginning of the story of Christmas. That's the promise of a savior. And let me just ask you this. What does it say about the character and nature of our God that in in response to rebellion, he would make a promise like this. And here's the thing, God not only promises a savior, his plan is to give us his very best. Now we don't get the whole picture in Genesis three, but we know his plan is to send his son. In Genesis three, all we get is there's one coming, born of a woman, he's gonna crush the head of the serpent. But if you read your Bible, the story unfolds, the story of Christmas continues to reveal itself. Genesis 12, God shows up to a man named Abram A man who had no kids at the time, and he says, Abram, in you and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so what we find out there is the Messiah, the promised one, who's gonna come and crush the head of the serpent, he's gonna come from this man's family. Genesis 49, we find out he comes from the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24, we find out he's gonna be a descendant of Jacob, who is a descendant of Abraham. 2 Samuel 7 says that the Messiah was gonna come from the house of David. 
And then the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, this will be on the screen, he adds to the story talking about this day when the Messiah would come. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a sign that this is the one. This is the one that's been promised. He says this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah says his mother will be a virgin. This is gonna be a sign to you that this is the promised one and he will be Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Which means that God isn't just gonna fix the problem, that he himself is gonna come to fix what is broken in this world. Hosea 11 says that the, the Messiah is going to be brought out of Egypt, which we'll hear about more in this series. Micah 5, Micah 5 2 says this, but you, O Bethlehem, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth, who is old, from ancient of days. So God says through the prophet Micah that the Messiah is gonna come from the little town of Bethlehem. And not only that, he's gonna be from ancient of days, which means that he is from the beginning of time. In the beginning, God. We could keep going. Over a hundred Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus. And for thousands of years, the people of God have put their hope in the promise of the Messiah. And the point for you and me today is this. Not only has God made these promises, God made good on them. The point is that our God keeps his promises. And if we wanna behold the promise of Christmas, we need to keep it front and center, right? We pay attention to it, careful attention, so we don't drift away. And with that said, I want you to look at Luke chapter two. I told you you had plenty of time. 22 minutes, to be exact. Luke two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. This is not once upon a time language, is it? This is incredibly detailed and specific. And honestly, it's hard to wrap your mind around how God could orchestrate all the circumstances, circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Consider these promises, right? Think about all the details of these promises. What we just read starts in Rome. We have a man named Caesar Augustus. He decides he wants to know how many people are in my kingdom. So let's have a registration. He's basically calling for a census. He wants to know how powerful am I? How many people will call me Lord? Let's make sure everyone's numbered. He, by his own house, right? So he decides the whole world is gonna have a census, which we're used to now. Only problem is he couldn't inundate people's mailboxes and hit their social media ads, right? He couldn't send people door to door. The US census I looked up this week cost us an estimated $15.6 billion. Just a little fact nugget for you to talk about at lunch. Back to Luke 2. We got this census happening. One powerful man, Caesar Augustus, serving his own agenda, right? And he is disrupting the lives of millions of people. And Joseph, since he just happened to be in the line of David, he couldn't be registered where he lived in Nazareth. He had to go back to the city of Bethlehem. And just think for a second, how frustrated would Joseph be here? We don't read the Bible that way because we just tend to think that all the people in the scriptures, they know exactly what God is doing in their life every moment of every day. But imagine Joseph, his pregnant wife, not even his kid. Because of what one man said in Rome, I have to travel 90 miles. That's basically going from here to Swainsboro without a car. 
on his day off, right? How frustrated would he be? Like, can you be, can you, are you kidding me? Just grumbling under his breath. But as we read earlier in Micah 5, 2, 700 years before this, God said to the, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so God uses a pagan king, Caesar Augustus, to fulfill a 700-year-old promise about the birth of the Messiah. Church, God has a plan. He is working on his plan and nothing can get in the way of it. That's true for Mary and Joseph. That's true for you. He has a plan and nothing can get in the way of it. He not only makes promises, he keeps them. And so as we start out on this journey to behold the promise of God, this means that we look back on the first advent of Jesus. We remember his life, his death, his resurrection, right? We remember that it, it counts for us that the, that the eternal son of God became a child so that we could become children of God. It means that we look ahead to his second advent, this promise. The Bible says there's coming a day where Christ will return. He's going to defeat sin and death once and for all. Revelation 21 says about this day, it'll be on the screen, verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the picture of the garden being restored, right? This is Jesus saying from the throne, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is, this is perfect creation being reunited with, Salo with Shalom. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. And this all things new is not like you're gonna be like patched up, fixed up. It's not that you're gonna be brand new. It's that you are going to be renewed. That you and creation and everyone is gonna be perfectly restored to God's intended order in Shalom. Verse five, also he said this, write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And this, it is done here. This is the final fulfillment of the destruction of God's enemies. This is, it is done. This is the final blow to the, to the head of the serpent as it, as it is crushed. And this is, uh, mirrors the language we see in John 19. And Jesus is on the cross. And he, before he breathes his last, what's he say? It is finished. Only in that moment, it doesn't look finished, does it? It doesn't look like Jesus is victorious in that moment. It looks like sin and death reigns victorious. But Jesus says it is finished because he knows that death will not get the final word because he knows that there will come a day where he will be on his throne where he will say, behold, I am making all things new. It is done. And as Christians, we should long for that day. We should look ahead to the second advent. We should long for the day where there will be no more sin, no more shame. No more hurt, no more pain. The day where God himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. The day where Jesus on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. Beholding the promise means that we center ourselves between these two realities. We center ourselves between these two advent realities. Jesus has come, but he has not yet come again. And man, there are a ton of implications in this for us. I'm gonna give us two today. Two implications for the, for the fact that Jesus has come, but he has not yet come again. One, we already have a savior. If Jesus has already come, but not yet come again, then we already have a savior. Number two, that this world cannot be all that we want it to be. And so I'm gonna spend just a few minutes chatting about these. If, 
Jesus has come and not yet come again, it means that we already have a savior. I think the natural way to respond to this, especially in church on a Sunday morning, is to say, of course. Of course we already have a savior. Like, I know that, right? And praise God, man, if that's your, what's going on in your mind right now, I got a savior, praise God, that's a gift. Um, but let, let me just answer this one question for me. You already have a savior, okay. Who or what is it? Is it Jesus? Like, really? And this is where we have to be honest with ourselves, right? Maybe it would be helpful for you to think back to the, the example I gave earlier. What would your life say? What would your life say as your savior if you thought back about how you spend your time and your energy and your money? What would your, your life say is your savior? Is it Jesus? And really what we're talking about here is hope. You can use a bunch of different words for it, right? Like, who or what is your savior? Who or what are you beholding? Who or what are you looking to to satisfy the deep longings of your heart? But what we're talking about is hope. What are you hoping will rescue you from the pain and loss that you experience in your life? What are you hoping will make your life everything you want it to be? And that can be a difficult question to answer, can it? Because it's just a sliding scale, right? There's, there's the big things in our life that we hope for. There's the small moments in our life. And I think an easy way or a, or a helpful way to kind of get to the bottom of where am I putting my hope is how would you complete this sentence? My life would be everything I want it to be if I have blank. You answer that and you will get to at least the starting point of where you're putting your hope. My, if I only had blank, my life would be what I want it to be. And, and, and that could, again, be used in the big moments of your life, the big things, the big pieces that you feel like are missing, that you're longing for, that you're praying for, all the way down to the small moments of your life. When you're angry, you're frustrated or disappointed or, or, you're, or you're not even sure why you feel the way that you feel. Ask yourself, what is my hope in this moment? What do I feel like if I had it, my life would be okay? Maybe for you, it's the, the hope that, that one day you'll be a mother. One day you'll be a father. Maybe one day you will be married. You'll be a husband or wife. Maybe it's one day you'll get the promotion that you've been working so hard for and people will finally give you the respect that you deserve. Maybe it's just that that certain group of people would finally recognize you and make you feel like you matter. Maybe it's like a material thing, right? If I could just get the new car or if I had a new house or if I had different clothes or a different phone or whatever. Maybe it's just, if I could just get a drink, I'd be fine. If I could just eat this thing, if I just go to this place and experience, like what, those are the, the small hopes, right? All these functional saviors that we put our hope in to deliver us from the pain and the loss that we feel in our lives. And if you think about it, there's really only two places you can put your hope. You can put it in creation or you can put it in the creator. And beholding the promise means that we have a savior that he's already come, that his name is Jesus. And this savior is not a nice fallback option if better things don't work out. This is how we treat him, isn't it? Jesus is not a nice consolation prize for unlucky people who can't do any better. He is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, right? He says right now on the throne of God, Revelation 21, verse six, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink your fill. Church, we already have a savior and his name is Jesus. Which means that we are free 
to abandon the search of something that will finally satisfy our thirst. We can answer every single time, what am I hoping in this moment will satisfy me? Jesus. We can abandon the search of looking for the next thing or the next relationship, the next toy, the next device, the next whatever that we think is gonna make our life what we want it to be, the next notch in life, climb the next ladder. We can abandon that. It doesn't mean that we don't work into those things. It just means we do it from a place of knowing I got all I need in Jesus. We go to him with the deep longings of our hearts. We look to him, we behold him. And again, this does not mean that if, if you do this, if you go to Jesus and behold him, then all of a sudden your life is gonna be what you want it to be. This is our second implication, right? If Jesus came, has come, but has not yet come again, that means that this world cannot be all that we want it to be. And I wrote that sentence intentionally. It cannot not it can for some people, but not for you, and so you end up with Jesus. No, it cannot be all that we want it to be because Jesus has not yet come. John 16, 33 says, I've said these things to you. This is Jesus with his closest friends in a room hours before he goes to the cross for their sins. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, he says, you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. This word tribulation, it means affliction or distress is what, the way it's translated other places in the Bible, but the literal meaning is pressure. And so Jesus says in a room with his closest followers, your life is gonna press you. It's gonna squeeze you. It's gonna squeeze you at times beyond what you think you can handle. And just, just for a moment, if he's hours away from the cross and he says you're gonna have tribulation, what, do, what type of pressure do you think he has in mind? Just a little bit? Right? He says his life is gonna press you, it's gonna squeeze you, but he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. This is a reference to the promise of Christmas that we've been talking about. There's gonna come a day where Jesus is gonna cry out, not like from the cross, it is finished. He's gonna cry out from the throne, it's done. Behold, I'm making all things new. That day is coming, so Jesus says, take heart for I have overcome the world. He's saying, position yourself between these two advent realities. I will die for you on the cross, but I am coming back to make all things new. So that should encourage us in the present when life presses us, but he says something else here that I want you to see. He says, I'm saying these things to you so that in me you may have peace. That's not peace then, that's peace now. And where is it found? In him. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not that if you give your life to Jesus, your life is gonna go the way you want it to. The good news of the gospel is that what you'll find is, regardless of what happens, Jesus has given you the promise that he'll be with you and that he's more than enough. This is what it means to live and behold the promise, live between these two advent realities. Now, I wanna close this way. I read a quote this week um, I don't normally do this, but I, I honestly think this summarizes what I'd like to say better than I could say it. By a guy named Ray Ortland, he's a pastor or was um, of a church in Nashville, and, it, and he's shepherded me quite a bit. I don't know him, um, but just through his writing and his preaching. And so I want this to pastor you as well in this moment. I hate being read to, by the way, so I'm sorry if you don't like that, but, but this is good. He says, Jesus is our only savior, Messiah and Lord. But I wonder if those words sound like cliches and we hate cliches. So let's press further into these words, Savior, Messiah, and Lord. They tell us that Jesus is God's healing for all the ways that we're injured and sad. Make a mental list of everything you hate about your life 
your regrets over the past, your anguish in the present, your fears for the future, all the ways in which you feel like you're missing out in life. Add to that a list of everything you hate about this world, the injustice, foolishness, the sheer boredom and exhaustion. And when we make these mental lists, what we're really doing is listing out all the ways that Jesus is relevant to us as our Savior and Messiah and Lord. It was for these very things that weigh us down that Jesus came to lift us up. He says, and he's good at it. He's successful. He's winning. Our Savior Christ and Lord is as massive as the full extent of our need. He lived the perfect life we've never lived. He died the guilty death that we don't want to die. And then on the third day, he rose up from it all and he's coming again to eradicate all evil and renew this world forever for anyone who receives him as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And then here's where I want us to land. He says, let's get out of our minds all the small thoughts about Jesus. Think about how crazy it is that we will allow the things God gives us to actually displace him from our hearts. Ray says, get all the small thoughts out of your mind about who Jesus is. Let's be cheered on this Christmas by the magnitude of who he is at the level of everything that tears us apart. It's the good news for us today. Jesus is our hope. He is our Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Church, he's what you need. He's what you need. In just a moment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna give us some time to respond and um, Gardner and the worship team are gonna sing a new song. And so I want you to respond just however you feel led. Sit, stand, listen, pray. Um, before we do that, we're gonna, we're gonna light the Advent candle. If you are not from a, a liturgical background or tradition, uh, this may feel foreign to you, but in reality, it's just a symbol, right? There's five candles, four weeks of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love, and the center candle is the Christ candle, and we light it symbolically along with believers for hundreds of years of saying, he is our hope. Next week, he's our peace, and he's our joy, and he's the ultimate source of love, the fulfillment of the love of God. And so we light this candle in, in a minute, and it's, it, it symbolizes the hope we have in Christ, and as it burns down this month, we'll go, I mean, we're that much closer to the day where he makes all things new. So let me light this for us and assemble the hope of Christ. Hopefully it'll work. And I'll pray and we'll respond to the good news of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. We're grateful this morning for the grace and mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus. I pray in this moment that by the power of your spirit, you would meet us would help us to respond. You would reveal to us, give us the courage to be honest about the places where we've put our hope. Help us to hear the gospel message fresh, that we're loved by you, not because we deserve it, but because Christ has earned it on our behalf. We pray in Christ's name.